Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This would not be Lauren, this is Brian, but with me as always... is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? Lauren, I am great. I am in such a good mood, as because as everyone could hear from that wonderful uh, beginning of the show, we're going to be talking baseball today. Yes, we are. Even though you weren't here for the interview, that's okay, we forgive you. But, you know, uh-huh. I don't know why I'm so happy today, other than that we get to talk about baseball. The show's back, maybe, possibly. Yeah, fuck the show. <laughs> it's okay. just that I haven't spoken to you in almost a month. I know, right? I, I need my shots of Lauren. Where have you been, Lauren? <laughs> um, well, at the beginning of the month, I was talking to the Whitechapel Society. Um, I went up to London and back in a day on the coach, and it was grueling. Not doing that again. I started a new job, and then just this weekend, just gone, I spoke at the East End Conference. Exactly, I was going to tell everybody, your your talk at, the, the first talk you gave is available if people want to go to RipperCast, um, the podcast RipperCast, uh, you can listen to Lauren's presentation, but is this next one, the one you did yesterday, going to be made available? Um, yes, it is. Um, all the talks from the East End Conference are going to be made available again on Rippercast. I'm not quite sure how they're going to be released um, because I think with um, with the East End Conference, they sort of stagger them. So um, I spoke on the second day, so I will be towards the end of them because uh, there was a speaker before me, Adam Wood, and then there was me, and then there was the speaker after me. Um, the, the speaker after me is very fascinating. It's very different to what you might expect from a conference. Um, it was about the um, radio dramatization, The Smiler with the Knife, and um, one of the researchers or historians, I, I would say he's a historian, um, found um it's incomplete uh the first portion is missing but he's found a, a version of the smiler with a knife now that as you know i'm an old-time radio freak that i gotta hear but speaking of staggering talks how staggering were you after drinking and, and cavorting in london um it was it was quite funny um i did very much enjoy my talk um i um 
I don't know how much of it you will hear, but we did a bit of a joke at the beginning. And then about um, after the first portion, I did get a bit of a clap. <laughs> you got the clap? Yeah. No, I, I got uh, I got a round of applause. Okay, I just don't, you know I don't want to think you got the clap. No, I was talking about the clap. <laughs> did, uh, yeah, did, did this the one? Did this one promote the podcast? Um, I don't know, but Carl Carl Kopak was very complimentary about your voice. Oh. Carl should come on the show. He should. I mean, we should promote his show because his show is fantastic. It is. And Carl, if you're listening, which I'm assuming you listen because you complimented my voice, you are welcome anytime. Um, I think remembering back to the introduction, he does, in my introduction, he calls you the magnificently voiced Brian Young. (laughs) Well, he's not far off. I mean, let's face it. You know. But it was great to be back in Whitechapel, and it was great to be back with friends. I am so happy, Lauren. And, you know, you're doing all these talks. You're getting too big for your britches. Pretty soon you're going to say, I don't have time for that schmuck Brian in America. Oh, no, that's not true. I'll always have time for that schmuck Brian (laughs) Brian in America. Speaking of magnificent voices. Yeah. uh, for our listeners who enjoyed uh, the episode we did with uh, William Jevning on Bigfoot, I was a special guest on his podcast, on the Creek Devil podcast. They brought me on for part of the question and answer period, which I, I, I'm assuming because they're masochists. Because what do I have to bring to their show other than talks of Ding Dings and Pluto? Right? Oh my goodness! Wow, I don't know. No. I so how is everybody in London? I mean, how was the um, quote-unquote Ripper community? Was it good to see them all again? How are they doing? Everybody's fine. Um, the customer service um, in one of the curry houses we went to was awful last night. Um, I don't think, like, I don't, he was very abrupt. Um, and I don't think it was like, um I think that's just the way that he was, <clears throat> but it was just, it was sort of like, we were giving out orders, Nick, you next, you next, and I was like, and they messed up some of the orders, and they tried to, tried to charge us for things. And... Now, I haven't been to my beloved London in close to a decade. That sucks for you. It does. So I want to ask you, and... and people this is not a joke this is me asking lauren a serious question last yes, time i was in white chapel all of it was curry yes. houses brick lane yes um like the first portion like uh, i don't know i know you know um at this sort of junction um of brick lane you know where it sort of runs i think Eve's, the Turkish restaurant, is more on Whitechapel's height, uh, sorry, yeah, Whitechapel Road. Yes. But sort of on the junction of um, Brick Lane, that's still there. But you know the big hotel that was at the bottom? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is now gone, and that's being turned into a Hilton. Ooh. So that is weird, having a Hilton on Brick Lane. Yeah. 
That's a bit incongruous. It doesn't seem right. Well, you know, um, it's a gentrified area. Some, some um, of the coffee house, uh, some of the, um, it's very weird because like every major city, um, London has been hit by the pandemic. So a lot of, lot of the smaller hotels, you know, the Indian run hotels that were on Brick Lane, mm-hmm. they're gone. And there's some of the curry houses didn't open again, but the main ones are still there, like the Bengal village. And, um, oh, there's another one that everybody goes to and I can't remember the name of it. Um, but that, you know, the main curry houses are still there. Um, but there's more like pop-up stuff that happens on the weekends. And it's really weird because, um, I normally go, um, just off, um, Petticoat Lane, um, there was the Japanese canteen, yes. um, um, that is closed on weekends. So some of the restaurants only open in the weekdays and they close on the weekends. I don't know if that's because the running costs for a weekend are significantly more. But or if people just aren't downtown during the weekend because of COVID. Um, Londoners don't tend to go into central London on the weekend you're more likely to find Londoners in the markets. Um, but, but like everywhere, Brick Lane has been hit by the pandemic, but not as much as other places. Um, what about our because, beloved um, Ten Bells? Ten Bells is still there. Ten uh, Bells will never go away. No. Um, though Spitalfields Market keeps changing every time i went there every time i go there there's new stuff there um they have an amazon hair salon okay they do honest to god they have an amazon hair salon um, you hair done? no it's amazon <laughs> I, I, I it's it's just very weird um so yeah it's um you know london has been hit by but my favorite restaurants are still there, so that's all good. I'm happy about that. Well, yeah, I mean... Because I don't starve. Them, but... Now, is it the dim sum place that you like so much there? Yes, I went there. Yeah. I was there, of course, I went there. That was beautiful. I mean, I, I sent, I've sent you and Kurt pictures of the food that it's bought on. But the thing is, is it's very easy to spend money there because of you get the dumplings. And when you're sharing with somebody as well, they usually say it's like between... Three and five dishes constitutes a full meal. So when you're sharing with somebody, of course, it's like 10. <laughs> and if they're that good, it's like 20. Oh, they're very good, though. Like sometimes the thing is, is it's not that you will get 10 different dishes. It's like you will get this, the same five dishes again because it's beautiful. But, yeah, it was, uh, it's nice to be back. There's American chocolate shops everywhere. Really? Do they, you think that's because of the merger with Cadbury? Um, no, because these are selling things like Milk Duds and Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers is Mars. Yes, that's true. But, so, you know, one of our companies merged with uh, Cadbury. I, I think it's because um, it's a very 
it's it's a very easy way to make money because you can charge pretty much whatever you want because you know it your supply you're supplying a demand which you can't get anywhere else and of course you've got to pay the import fees you know speaking of cadbury yeah i know i go off on these tangents i am so sick of those fucking cadbury eggs cadbury's cream eggs they're, they're beautiful they're no, gorgeous no they're, they're disgusting and sarah's they're addicted to them and they're all over my apartment like fucking walnuts on the dick van dyke show Sorry, that was a pop culture reference that just went way over your head. I was in Cardiff, um, well, I'm there one day a week with my job, and um, there were there was a shop that was selling marshmallow peeps. I love but I stale peeps. What? Stale peeps. You got to buy peeps and open them so they get stale. Then they're delicious. Um, no. But I know I've never tried them. I just thought I, I just it just didn't appeal to me like marshmallows in these neon colors. Marshmallows are pink and they're white, and that's it. No, marshmallow peeps are wonderful when they're stale. Or if you want to try something fun, and no, I am not encouraging anybody to do this at home. Please, people, do not do this at home. But, it, but if you put a marshmallow peep in the microwave for a few seconds, it blows up like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from, from Ghostbusters. You leave it in a few seconds too long, it'll explode and destroy your microwave. I can imagine. Oh, it's beautiful, though. But, yeah, I am so happy that we're back and doing the show and, and yeah. we're talking again. Like you say that, like we fell out. We did not fall out. No, we've just been so busy. Yes, I started a new job um, in um, the National Museum of Wales. I've been dashing around doing talks. Yeah, and I've been uh, uh, sleeping. You know, working and sleeping and uh, watching baseball. And uh, working from home is brilliant, though. Basically, I'm a bum. I uh, I'm not. That's not true. I've been I've been working on a couple new projects and doing you know the occasional guest spots on podcasts and working a ton of hours. But did oh did you find out how well your book did? I find that out this week sometime, but I haven't yet. So hopefully by next week's episode, mm-hmm. I will know. Speaking of next week's episode, oh, oh boy. Neil Story will be back, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, dear. <laughs> but with Bruce Hollenbeck as well, we're going to talk about Dracula in movies. I'm kind of hoping that Bruce will keep Neil in check. Oh, I think he will. But it's going to be great yeah. to talk Dracula. It's going to be great to talk to Bruce and Neil. Um, tonight's guest was, oh, Lord, I wish you were here for the interview. It was so much fun. The great Ed Acorn came back, um, author, historian, journalist, all-around good fella, except for the fact that he's a Red Sox fan. He came back out. We got to talk about baseball and history and just had a great time. So that's like all the, the stuff we have. To, oh, you know what we should do? We should, history? Well, we should give some shout-outs first because... Um, you know, we, we, we've just, 
we've gotten a lot of feedback lately from people, and I just want to, you know, tell everybody out there we really appreciate it. Um, every time we disappear for a couple weeks, I end up getting these emails from people saying, is the show canceled? What's going on? And we're back. Thank you for your letters. Thank you for your concern. I didn't get one email that said, ah, at least you're fucking done. No, everyone wanted us back. So thank you all. And for those that want to reach out to us, you can reach us several ways. Uh, you can join our Facebook group, which is, Lauren? History Ramblings. Or you can reach us on Twitter at TA History or History TA. And we have, um, what else we got? Um, we have Instagram, which is History Ramblings. We have TikTok, which is History Ramblings. And that's we have about a, it. No, we also have two emails you can reach us at, which is our first one, the main show email. If you just want to talk about the show or criticize the show or call call me obnoxious or talk about Lauren's wonderful bedtime story voice, you can reach us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. Or we have the spooky supernatural ghost email box for our upcoming listener stories about ghosts, which is, what's that email, Lauren? Historyramblings.paranormal at gmail.com. Tell us your ghost stories, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do more ghost stories on the air and have some experts on to break it down and have a good time with, with the spooky ghosts. But you're right. We also should go to our, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see, Today in History. You like that? I did. Yeah, Are pretty you cool, finding huh? out how your um, microphone works? Well, my day in history, Lauren, and since our show's about baseball, I figured I'd stick on the fancy rounders for my day in history. But today in history, April 25th, 1980. And this is cool because it's a day in history I actually remember happening. Oakland A's manager Billy Martin has to be restrained by umpires while trying to attack a fan who was throwing marshmallows at him. The next night, three more fans showed up, sat behind the dugout throwing marshmallows at Billy Martin. Today in history, Billy Martin tried beating the shit out of a fan for throwing marshmallows at him. Isn't that great? It is great, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Billy Martin's dead, so you can't throw marshmallows at him anymore, but the lesson is, don't throw marshmallows at people. I know. Or marshmallow peeps. You're, like, stunned. You're, like, you wasted a day in history on a baseball guy getting marshmallows thrown at him. I'm just stunned at the wastefulness of the marshmallows. Well, there is a reason behind it. Uh, a few months. Did they think he was or something. Well, a few months prior to this, Billy Martin made national headlines for getting in a fight in a hotel lobby where he knocked a guy out, and the guy was described in the paper as a marshmallow salesman. Ah. So then people started throwing marshmallows at Billy Martin, but. I just love that the umpires had to restrain him from attacking a fan for throwing marshmallows at him. Well, my day in history is a bit different. No marshmallows? No marshmallows. 
Mm, yeah, all right. Well, let's hear it anyway. Well, on the 25th of April, 1660, the English Convention Parliament meets and votes to restore Charles II, and we enter the Restoration after the very dark years of Cromwell's Republic. What year was that? 1660. Did they have marshmallows then? Um, no, probably not. But they did. They would have. Um, they would like make figures out of sugar and stuff. So maybe. Maybe they them. threw marshmallows at him at his coronation. I don't know if they did that. I would. Yeah, I know you would. You'd try and travel just to do that. Maybe if they didn't have marshmallows, that'd be a waste of a trip. You know. After um, after putting the peeps in the microwave, giant peeps. <laughs> yeah. Speaking giant of time peeps travel. Speaking of time travel, yeah. I watched the Star Trek Four again the other day, and I know you're a Trekkie, and you always get mad when I say I like the one with the whales. But I watched that the other day, and you know what, people, go watch Star Trek Four again because that's a good fucking movie. That's all I got to say about that. It's a fun movie. I mean, any Star Trek is good. No, not all Star Trek is good. Well, it's Star Trek, you know. Yeah, Search for Spock kind of sucked. Wrath of Khan didn't. No, Wrath of Khan's great, and the whales are great. And I like the motion picture, but uh, Search for Spock kind of sucked. And the ones with the, the, the Next Generation cast, those movies sucked. Yeah, the last one did. Yeah. But... I like Picard, I like Picard though. That's good. Yeah, but but that's mostly because John Delancey's in it. Star Wars is better. And I know I'm going to like get in fights on the internet for that. But I am just more yeah. excited about the Obi-Wan series coming out because I am a huge fucking nerd. Yeah. Now, does I, that premiere I, next month for you in Wales on Disney Plus? Does it drop the same um, time or do they delay it? Disney Plus is it seems to be Disney Plus, and it just seems like it. You don't have like different territories; they just all you just have Disney Plus. <laughs> Obi Wan, you gonna watch Obi Wan? Yeah. Did you like the the book of Boba Fett? Um, I haven't seen that yet. Ooh, I loved it. A Most lot of people hated it. I loved I, it. Mostly because my nephew. It's my Disney Plus. But I let my nephews watch it, mm-hmm. and um, they make it very complicated for me to watch things because they set all these things up on it. Like they've set them, they've set their mother and themselves each a profile, but not me. And it's yours. And it's mine. That's kind of jive. I mean, it's kind of funny that my youngest nephew is Loki because he is the youngest child, and he is pretty mischievous. Yeah, but I just didn't like that they didn't send me a profile. I felt very aggrieved. And also as well, um, even though it is streaming, I used to work shifts in the cinema, and I still haven't got into a routine of where I watch things now. Well, you but, should. Yeah, but, I need but to But you get can't because it. you're traipsing all over the place, giving lectures well, and giving yeah, talks, and I'm famous Lauren. <laughs> Because it's only been, like, um, just over a month since I handed in my dissertation. Exactly. So I, I, I'm still, that's in. Um, 
I mean, if you were so busy that I couldn't get a hold of you for another week, I was going to have Jeremy King come on and be Jeremy King's Lauren. You know, when he does your voice. And do a show that way and just try to pass it off, see if anybody noticed the difference. You, I mean, I, I was there. I, 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 I was, you know, I would have done shows, but you know, um, it takes time to write the talks. And I mean, if, um, I was very excited about the one, um, that I just did because that's been over two years in the making. I mean, we've been, they've been trying to get a conference in the East end since October, 2020. Do you think it's bad? Do you remember the last talk that I did that they put on Rippercast? That was that was twenty twenty. That was twenty nineteen, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the last one that they put on Rippercast. Was one of my talks. Do you know how long I prepared that talk? I don't know. None. I just improvised the whole thing. Ugh. I had notes about like dates and time, so I wouldn't mess up certain dates. But the rest of the talk was just off the cuff, and then because if you remember, I kept telling people, "Give me questions. I like questions." Speaking of questions, yes. Do you think it was inappropriate to ask about Bigfoot's ding ding? Yes, it was. I, I I don't because we did get an email about that with someone saying, "I was waiting for you to ask that question because I knew you would, and I was curious about it." So I just want to point that out there that our listeners know if you need questions answered about ding dings, you know where to tune in. Yeah, they do. So, you think Carl still wants to come on the show? Possibly not. <laughs> again, um, if you talk to him again uh, in the near future, thank him for the compliments of, of my... How, how did he put it, Lauren? He called you the magnificently voiced <laughs> Brian Young. Oh, the magnificently voiced. I like that. I think that's what we're going to call the show from now on. Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and the magnificently voiced Brian Young. No? Maybe. <laughs> well, on that note, I think I better fire up the magic interview box. What do you think? I think you better, yes, before we have an argument. <laughs> it's the magic interview box. All right. And, Lauren, did you notice yes. that I didn't tell you a joke this week? I, I did. Yep, I'm saving them for next episode. Oh, I got some good ones for you. But, now that the Magic Interview Box is fired up, you get to actually listen to the interview with the listeners, because you haven't heard it yet. So, let's flip the switch and bring on the great Ed Acorn. <laughs> All right, I am so thrilled again to welcome one of my favorite all-time guests who's avoided us for well over a year now, but to his defense, there's been a pandemic going on. This is not only the author of one of the greatest books I've ever read on Lincoln, seriously, folks, you got to get it, but two of my favorite baseball books ever written, and quite possibly not the greatest baseball book, but the greatest book ever written, Summer of Beer and Whiskey. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Mr. Ed Acord. How are you? Hey, Brian, how are you doing? 
I'm doing, doing great, to tell you the truth. Well, it's been a while since we've spoken, and, uh, you know, we had a shortened baseball season last year. We got baseball back, and I said, I want to do a baseball show with someone like me who truly loves baseball, but not so big on what baseball has become. And I think you fit the bill. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think it was better. I guess every generation says this, but I really do think uh, it was more enjoyable uh, many decades ago. Well, so. one thing we disagree on, though, and we got to lay this out there for people right away, is, you know, I'm a Yankee fan. <laughs> and you're a Red Sox fan. I still love you, but, uh, you know, not when they play each other. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, remembering I was at that game where Jason Veritek uh, shoved A-Rod in the face. I was I was actually there sitting on the first base side uh, watching that whole thing. So that was, uh, that was a great moment of history. Yeah. Well, to reference the Yankees, last night I'm watching the Yankees-Tigers game which is just an early season, you know, first trip to Detroit game. And it lasted four and a half hours. Oh. And this was not extra innings, nothing, a regulation game. To me, that's the biggest problem. And, and I love baseball. I could watch baseball around the clock, don't get me wrong, but when i got to wake up for work the next day, four and a half hour game kind of drags on you. Yeah, the, you know, as a histor baseball historian looking at this, it's so interesting that baseball was originally regarded in America as this really fast-paced game. I mean, real, real fast-paced. The games were like an hour and a half long. They were constant action. There were no um, advert, you know, no broadcasting, so there were no breaks between the innings. One team would come running in, and the other team would immediately you know, uh, go running out and, and they started the inning right away. So, you know, an hour and a half, uh, they had to get, play them quickly because there were no lights, at the ballparks. So people would, uh, the games would start around four o'clock. Uh, mostly men went to them. They, they, uh, mostly upper middle-class men who had worked in the office all day and would go to the ballpark and watch games starting at four o'clock. And they had to get in the games pretty fast uh, before the sunset. And uh, I think that was a good thing, actually. It was, uh, you know, these games were, uh, they moved quickly. They were action-packed. The batters didn't step out of the box and adjust their gloves. If they did that in the 1880s, the pitcher, pitcher would knock them on their ass or they would... Uh, throw the ball over the plate, and the umpire would call it a strike. They wouldn't uh, permit the batters to get away with the kind of nonsense they're doing now. Well, it's not just in the 1880s. In the 1960s and 70s, <laughs> if you did that to Bob Dixon, I don't think you'd have a scalp. <laughs> God, Gibbs, Gibson was the greatest, huh? I know. I mean, but that's, and that's another thing that's missing in the game. The pitcher owns the plate. I'm sorry, batters. Pitcher owns the plate. Yeah. Well, you know, 1968, when I was a kid, uh, they had to change the rules because uh, the pitching got too good. 
and the bat- batters uh, didn't have much of a chance. Well, there was one 300 hitter in uh, 68 in the American League, I think, if memory serves. Uh, so, and, and fans, I guess, found that boring. So they they lowered the uh, height of the mound and uh, and dealt with it that way. But um, yeah. I, I do did like aggressive pitchers who defended the plate, and I liked batters who wouldn't take nonsense too. Yeah, and, <clears> you know, <throat> part of the problem the uh, chicks dig the long ball campaign, which blew up and backfired in baseball's face because it led to the massive yeah. influx of PEDs. Terrible. Yes, that ruined baseball. It ru- I mean, it ruined the statistics. It ruined the history. It was. Just a terrible thing for the game. But chicks dig the long ball. Yeah, I, and so yeah, do I don't think so. I, because check out how attendance well, goes up. Yeah, it's you know it's fun. It's fun to see a home run, and uh, but uh, you know not if it's bought uh, uh, by cheating. You know, it's not. Uh, uh, it's to me that's. So heartbreaking what happened to the game during the steroids era. It's terrible. And now that now the players are these sort of robotic specimens. I mean, they're really uh, bulked up. Uh, they're all in terrific shape. I was watching a, uh, I have this video of a Red Sox game from 1967 next to the last game of the season. And it was, I don't know if, have you ever seen that? It's uh, its a video of the whole game in color. And I think it was the first color baseball game ever recorded. I've seen clips of it on YouTube, but never the whole video. Yeah, the whole thing is just wonderful because uh, you get to see how different the game was. Uh, you know, the players look like normal human beings, like somebody you'd see on the street. It's just insane. Uh, the, <laughs> the tall ones, the short ones. There's bulked up ones, there's uh, overweight ones, and it's uh, it's to me that's very fun watching baseball that way. And the games the game goes along very quickly. Um, there's no advertising in your face. Uh, you know, I'm looking at Fenway Park, and there's no ads all over the Green Monster. Uh, you know, it's just the baseball was the thing, and it was. You know, we've lost all that. Now it's just endless marketing in your face. And, and uh, Major League Baseball wants to allow people to start advertising on their uniforms. Players there, Union wants this. Oh, oh. There we go. Yeah, Major um, League Baseball field's going to look like a NASCAR track. Yep, yep. Well, didn't they want to put Spider-Man on the bases uh, several years ago? Well, they put Spider-Web <laughs> as, the, as the backdrop. Remember that? Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, look, I, NASCAR gets a pass on that. Because <laughs> when NASCAR started, there was no money in it. Yeah. They had to. And that built the brand. Of course, now it's, I think, what, the second most attended sport in the country. They could do without it, but it's part of the game now. Yeah. I, I, yeah so I give them a pass. It's different for baseball. I think... You know, individual players going out there, you know, you don't want to see ads on everything. It's already, uh, you know, these long breaks between innings, 
what is it, three minutes? Uh, and then you're watching the game and everything's an ad thrown in your face. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a grumbling old man, but, oh, too you late. know, we mi- yeah, we miss having, you know, baseball d- played in a slightly purer manner. Before we get back to, to not being grumbly old men, <laughs> there's one more I got to bring up because this, this sticks in my craw. Counting the amount of ads for sports gambling during a game that bans Joe Jackson and Pete Rose from the Hall of Fame. Right, right. Yeah, it's a complete hypocrisy. I think I think they should be banned myself. I, um, I do too. Because, um, uh, you know, baseball went through two giant crises, uh, that could have really killed off the game. I mean, the worst one was in the 19th century. In 1877, the uh, Louisville Grays threw the pennant to the Boston, uh, I guess they were called the Red Stockings back then. They just threw the pennant. Um, and uh, to, to, to for, for the sake of uh, gamblers. And it's, and that, really did a number on the game it was in one of the one of my books the summer beer and whiskey is about how this german immigrant restored interest in baseball in which beer. had fallen to it through beer and sunday baseball games and low admission prices but um the game had been almost killed off by the fact nobody could believe you know it's like professional wrestling nobody could believe what was happening on the field was uh, the result of effort and and competition. It wasn't just, they would call it a hippodrome, um, a, a total farce. Uh, so, and the game very nearly died. And then and in 1919, of course, the, the White Sox, that, uh, that, that did enormous damage. And uh, we got to rewind a second. You can't be bashing wrestling like that since my last book was a book about pro wrestling. <laughs> As you know, I know that was a little dig you threw in there. That's right. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. You know, I'm not going to claim it was real, but they made us believe. That's my point. Um, yeah. As a kid, that was so fun. I mean, it was just wild. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but with baseball, my problem is oh, there was always hypocrisy. Um, yeah, you mentioned yeah. the 1919 series with the, the famous Black Sox scandal. Yeah. Well, you know, it takes people like you and me, historians of the game, to point out that, you know, the finger was pointed at the White Sox because Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker got caught. Right. <laughs> you know, and they're in the Hall of Fame because they, they you know, but what about... You know, it was a what about Hillary's email in 1919. Yeah, yeah. What, what wasn't uh, Frank Chance a, a big, uh, big, yeah. big problem too? Yeah, the 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 uh, the, the stars of the game uh, were not all that trustworthy back then, and they it should have been policed. I think it was a good thing for baseball <laughs> to bring in this cantankerous old judge to to uh lean on everybody not the best character in history judge landis <laughs> I, I think he still holds the record for most 
decisions overturned as a federal judge, which tells you something. Really, and he's got good company for that. So, he does, yeah. but I think he still has the record. Um, but he was a tough old bastard. Yeah, yeah, he really needed to... Uh, and he was necessary. Yeah. Now, so I, I feel bad for some of the, some of the White Sox. Kerr getting banned a year after because he played barnstorming games with guys who were banned. Well, fuck you, Landis. That was his own yeah. time, and he had to make money. Yeah. You know, Buck Weaver, because he knew about it but didn't say anything, but yet he did say something. It's yeah. just people didn't want to hear it. Yeah. Even Joe well, Jackson blew him in, and, you know, they said, keep the money, go away. Yeah. But I think a bright red line has to be drawn, and it's to me it's appalling. Uh, Major League Baseball makes so much money off gambling. I mean, it's uh, of course that you know. To be fair, gambling was very influential not only in almost destroying baseball in the 19th century, but in creating interest in the game. In fact, I think that was the reason they first brought in scoreboards that showed the scores of other games because uh, the gamblers in the crowd wanted to to see what, what how all their bets were doing. Look, everybody knows <laughs> America is a country about vice. And gambling has always been one of our big vices that we've always loved. In the 19th century and into the early 20th century, the two most popular sports in America were baseball and horse racing. What do the two yep. have in common? <laughs> yep, you're right. And since then, football. And I'll tell you right now, I guarantee you, if you took beer and betting away from football, it would die. Yeah, yep, you, I agree with you. I agree with you, but you got to draw a red line around the players. They can't be corrupted. Um, and, you know, they could be in the early days because ball players made good money, but not great money. I mean, they had to work, many of them had to work in the winter time to, to put food on the table and all that. So they were more uh, susceptible to. Uh, to gambling money than later players. Yeah, when people hear that Yogi Berra ran a bowling alley and was a suit salesman to pay the bills, the guy with more World Series rings than anybody in history, <laughs> you know, had to sell suits <laughs> in the offseason. And now Aaron Judge says $35 million a year for seven years isn't good enough. Right. There's and he problem. was also the greatest philosopher in baseball history, too. Without question. Did I ever tell you my Yogi story? No, no. Met Yogi when I was a little kid. <laughs> I was in Cleveland, and it was Yankees, Indians, old-timers weekend. But Yogi was also managing at the time. And we were staying in the same hotel with the Yankee old-timers. My, my mother's going to be listening to this. And, oh, this was great. My parents have been divorced forever, but they were married at the time, and this is one of the reasons they were divorced, because my mother told me and my younger brother, come on, let's sneak into their party. And we did, of course, pissing off my father. But <laughs> Yogi comes walking in the, the lobby of the hotel, and we're little kids. We run up to get his autograph. 
Mr. Bear, Mr. Bear, can you sign this? And he takes the paper, and as he's writing, he's looking at us smiling, but kept saying, fourth floor, fourth floor, fourth floor, fourth floor, fourth floor. <laughs> like he would forget where his room was. <laughs> and now, I'm going to tell a story that's not fit for, for the kitty's ears. So if your children are listening to this podcast, this is when they should leave the room. By the greatest, no, no, uh, this is not a dig at you, the greatest sports writer in the history of the world, my mentor and my dear friend, the late Bert Sugar, told me. When he was a little kid, growing up in Washington, big baseball fan, and he was hanging outside the clubhouse, there was a doubleheader, Yankees doubleheader, Yankees uh, Senators, way back in and he was asking for autographs. And one of the pitchers said, come back in between games, ask for me, I'll get you in the clubhouse and get the team to sign a ball for you. So he shows back up in between games. He goes, they let him in the locker room. And here come a couple guys with, you know, uh, sawhorses and planks, and they're setting up a table of, of cold cuts little different than today's in-between-game spread players get, huh? <laughs> he goes, and I'm standing there just watching this all happen, and all of a sudden this goofy guy comes walking out of the showers completely naked, looks at the table and says, ooh, they have pickles, <laughs> and runs over to the table and grabs a pickle, at which point Bill Dickey lit, screams out to the room, hey, everybody, Avoid the mayonnaise. Larry just dragged his balls through it. Larry was the rookie catcher just called up Yogi Berra. So like a, a seven-year-old Bert Sugar watched Yogi Berra drag his balls through mayonnaise. You don't get stories like that in other shows, right. folks. That gives you a different perspective on it. Well, you know, uh, Ball 4 was all about those kind of stories. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but, mean, it's, but that's baseball was colorful characters. You right. got stories like that. And we're talking throughout the history of the game. Yeah. And now, yeah. where are the colorful stories you hear? You know, these guys all make $20 million a year. Right. You know, they're shuttled to the game. They're, they're treated like royalty. And there's no more stories. There's no more. The game lost its color somewhere. Yeah, I think it's, uh, the thing is, it's so professional. It's, I mean, it was professional back in the day, but everything now is calibrated. Uh, everything is uh, statistically measured. Uh, they all have to be in tip-top condition at all times. They all have to, to uh, really, uh, they're all under the gun. Uh, so it does take a little of the humanity out of the game. I mean, you look at Babe Ruth, and he's got this belly, and he's uh, whacking the ball all over the place, and uh, he would never be permitted to be Babe Ruth today. Never. It's so funny, um, because we talk off outside the show, and we pop each other up once in a while in the chat. I remember one time I just popped you up and just said, analytics killed baseball. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, without question. 
Yeah. Because, you know, there was something about the gut instinct that made a great, a good manager great. And now well, you know they're not making those decisions. It's all on a printout. Right. Now it's all uh, statistical measures of uh, averages. You know, what what would give us the best return on this play? And everything's measured. It's, it's, it's just extraordinary. But, uh, you know, that was started way back, though. I mean, Earl Weaver... He was uh, pretty early on in using numbers. Uh, he would make bases lineups on batting averages against the pitchers or, or success against the opposing pitchers. He would uh, weigh what, what plays made the greatest return and what uh, circumstances and so forth. So he was, you know, he was into it then, but it wasn't so immensely pervasive over the whole game. Yeah, but you also uh, got to admit, you did. You left out the fact that Earl Weaver was also once kicked out of a game before <laughs> the lineup cards were exchanged before the game started. <laughs> Have you seen the the uh, videos of him on YouTube where he's cur- <laughs> swearing up a storm at the umpires? And it's I ran into him in a Baltimore airport one time. Ah. Uh. And I just went up and I said, Mr. Weaver, I, I got to just shake your hand and say hello. I'm a big fan. And I got to ask, how the fuck did you get thrown out of a game before it started? <laughs> and he la- he was in a wheelchair at the time. And he just started laughing. And he goes, well, because I remembered something the umpire did the game before. And when we went out to exchange lineup cards, I knew I shouldn't have gone because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> that was that Earl the, Weaver. Is that the only time that ever happened? Do you know? I think he's the only one ever picked up before a game started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People out if you're out there and you remember the legacy of Billy Martin being kicked out of games, that's nothing compared to Earl Weaver. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Everyone should check out Earl Weaver clips on YouTube. <laughs> but you know, the game was. What I love looking at the 19th century is um, just how colorful these players were back then. I mean, the game was crazy back then. It was played barehanded. Um, they they would play through injuries. Uh, old Haas Radborn threw 678 innings in one season. I mean, can you imagine the pitcher now? I mean, it's, you know, if they hit 200, they're doing well. Uh extraordinarily well so uh it's just so fun looking at the old game and there was a guy in uh, in the summer beer and whiskey they the philadelphia athletics desperately needed uh, some help because all the people were injured and they were uh in first place uh and they brought up this pitcher from yale university called jumping jack jones and he she literally jumped before he pitched the ball. And I think it's, it's just, a balk now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just crazy uh, when you look at, and all this is sort of lost to history. So that's the fun part of going back to the 19th century, because a lot of it's, it's so difficult to dig out. You got to go through game after game in the newspapers and piece it all together. And they speak a different language. <laughs> 
19th century, the sports writers. So you got to figure out what all these slang words mean and all that. But it's uh, it's just great stuff. And um, and that's the thing. My love of history. Um, yeah. And my love of baseball history started with, I think, with a lot of people of my generation with, you know, Elliot Asimov's Eight Men Out book. Yeah. You know, that got me down a rabbit hole of dead ball era baseball. Then I started wanting to go deeper, pre-dead ball era baseball, 19th century baseball, and I was lucky enough to discover you. (laughs) Because I am not exaggerating when I say you wrote two, probably my two favorite books ever written on baseball. And I've read hundreds of books on baseball. Your two books are two two of the three greatest baseball books ever written, without question. And thank you. Summer of Beer and Whiskey. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's a relatively recent book called Turning the Black Sox White, uh, all oh, yes. about telling the truth about all the lies of Comiskey that were told yeah, over the yeah. years to make him the villain. Yeah. Really good I book. Did, I didn't mean to talk over you talking about one of my books. No, no. The, I didn't mean summer. to talk over you praising me. <laughs> really? <laughs> Summer of Beer and Whiskey is one of the only baseball books and history books that you will find yourself laughing out loud reading to yourself over some of these stories, especially about Charles Vander A. <laughs> I mean, folks, you really got to pick this book up. But to get us off our grumpy old man thing, I, just... Give people a brief rundown of who Vander A was and what made him so such a character. I mean, you couldn't create this kind of character if you were trying to write a a major league type movie. Yeah, he he, he was just uh, he, he's just wonderful. He's this German immigrant. He knows nothing about baseball. <laughs> he invests in the in the the. Uh, what became the the St. Louis Cardinals? But he invests in the St. Louis Browns uh, just to sell beer. He noticed uh, people at the ballpark uh, down the street, and they were, <laughs> so he he said, "Oh, this is a good way to sell beer." So uh, so he bought the team, and he, he flogged his beer at the ballpark. And he's he's just so funny. I mean, he he uh, gosh. Um, he would he would uh, yell at his players for dropping the ball and uh, as if every single error was deliberate. Why did you drop that ball, eh? And uh, he would uh, he would you know he famously uh, talked to the clubhouse that he would uh, if they made more errors he'd cut off their money and. He's, I don't want some foolishness from you fellows. I want you to stop this slushing and play ball. Slushing <laughs> was uh, drinking. If you win the championship, I give you all a suit of clothes and a benefit game extra. And if you don't, you will have to eat snowballs all winter. So he's... Uh, <laughs> he was so great. He didn't know shit about the game. And yet no. put himself in the middle of it as though he were the expert. <laughs> It was great. He uh, and it worked. 
Yeah, he would say things like, I, I want to kill one bird with a double stone. And he would go get uh, two players or something. And it did work. It did work. He had, uh, it worked at the start. He had some of the greatest teams of the 19th century. And uh, he, he restored the public's love of baseball. It's an incredible thing. And it's all built around, I mean, what I, when I write about baseball, I, I love baseball because I think it's this window into the culture of the time. And when you see what he was doing with baseball, it just reflects the immigrant experience in America. I mean, the immigrants came over from Europe, uh, especially the Germans, and they loved Sunday activities, uh, like the uptight Protestants on the East Coast didn't uh, had blue laws, didn't play baseball on Sunday, none of this. And out west, he, you know, it was called West St. Louis. Um, it was a very different atmosphere, and he capitalized on that. And it's yeah. just great. We it's owe hot. Sunday baseball to these guys. <laughs> it's hot. They're going to need beer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was his logic. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he had... Uh, you know, there were no lights at the games, but he at night he would have fireworks at the ballpark. He had uh, sort of a beer garden in right field. I mean, these were innovations well ahead of their time. And he lowered the ticket price. Yep. And gave <laughs> season ticket discounts. <laughs> he, he lowered the, you know, the National League, which was kind of stodgy and sort of set up in the, the uh, eastern cities more than the West, um, they charge 50 cents a game, and they tried to keep the riffraff out. And Vondere uh, sold tickets for 25 cents, uh, half the price, and people just packed his park on weekends. It was, uh, it was great. And that, uh, you know, really got baseball going again. It was so moribund, and... Uh, you know, the National League was very worried about uh, drinking at the ballpark and the riffraff, and they would try to encourage women to come to the ballpark because men tended to act less like pigs around women. And uh, But uh, Vondere just opened it up to, to everybody, and it, and it, it, it worked. I mean, <laughs> I write about the some of these crowds, which were... Uh, very unruly. They almost killed an umpire in, in Philadelphia one Understandably day. so. Hey, Philadelphia, <laughs> they throw snowballs at Santa, okay? Yeah, that's right. Rocks in the snowballs. But they, uh, they literally uh, surrounded an umpire, and he had to go hide in a building, and they, they stood outside the building for like six hours and <laughs> threatened his life. And finally, uh, he was able to escape. But, uh, yeah, the kill the umpire was not a uh, slogan in uh, the 1880s, that's for sure. No, Vondere also, I don't know, whether he cared about the public or not, it's up for debate. But he wanted to make it more of an entertainment. It's not just a game. This is an outing. Yeah. yeah. And that's lost, too. And it's funny you say, you know, they were worried about drinking in the major leagues, and now there's a team called the Brewers. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, and the, you know, but in the early days, some players did show up at games drunk, and you know, well, old Hoss Radborn, who's the subject of my first book, uh, his relative said he would drink up to a quart of whiskey a day at the height of his career. So he must have been taking pops during the day. The second greatest baseball player. <laughs> the difference between the two is you don't laugh so much during that one. Well, he's, uh, old Haas is kind of a fun guy, because he's the first human being evidently photographed giving the middle finger. Every picture taken of him. (laughs) I point that out to people to this day because of that book. (laughs) And there he is on his baseball card in 1887, and he's holding his hands on his belt and his middle fingers extracted. And And in a team photo. (laughs) <laughs> and in a team photo, too. And I didn't even know, you know, before I started researching him, I didn't even know people knew that gesture back then. But they did. <laughs> they did, clearly. <laughs> and he married uh, a woman, I think he was a prostitute, in, uh, and ran, a, uh, ran a, a brothel in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, so I tell about their love story. Uh, he stuck with her through thick and thin, and they, and he died of uh, syphilis and, uh, as a fairly young man. So and he had fifty nine wins in one season. <laughs> fifty nine. They keep changing it. They moved it from sixty to fifty nine, and now I think it's officially sixty again. But it's all speculation because that wasn't an official statistic in 1884 it was uh it's just based on what how we want to count it now but he Um, was more of a tragic figure he got more of a well yeah more of a tragic wanderay was kind of tragic but he was funny tragic well yeah (laughs) he he his womanizing and his and his uh he just lost all his money he spent a fortune he he uh, had a statue to himself commissioned and he put it on top of his uh the grave gravestone after <laughs> and so you can go out to the the graveyard in St. Louis and see this imposing statue of Vondere with one leg thrust forward and, and very uh it just makes me laugh every time I see it because he's so egocentric. He's so human. He, uh, you know, he's, I write about, he had carriage crashes and he would tumble out of the carriage and one of his girlfriends would be in the carriage. And he was just, uh, just a bigger than life guy. I hope, I wish he would get into the hall of fame. They're still against him. He really should be. He made the game what it is. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's so wonderful and colorful, and he saved the game, I think. And but you know, they the early uh, moguls of baseball were very, very down on him. They thought he was, uh, you know, a real jerk and a troublemaker, and uh, and so they kept him out of the Hall of Fame early on, and and. You know, the National League uh, essentially survived, and the American Association did not. And that prejudice played into, 
you know, turning down all sorts of American Association players for the for the Hall of Fame. And that's it's, what we got to do. The two of yeah. us, we got to start the campaign to get him in. <laughs> we do. Well, they had a symposium at the Hall of Fame, uh, I think, uh, this month uh, about Von Der a, which <laughs> which I was not invited to, but um, really? yeah, but. Uh, they, they, I think they're discussing that issue and pushing for it, and I hope they, I hope they succeed. It'd be very good. There's um, a baseball guy in in St. Louis named Steve Pona, P-O-N-A, who's been very active in trying to get him in the hall, and it, he keeps failing. But uh, boy, I hope they turn around and recognize him just for the, I mean, for the pure color of it. And if they do. You have got to be there to deliver his <laughs> And I'm going to campaign for that, too, because... That would be the honor of a lifetime, yes. You, you should. I mean... <laughs> you, and another thing. Uh, here's another thing we got to do. we got to write a book together. we got to pick another colorful character in baseball and do a book <laughs> on him. Like, we'll do, like, Rube Waddell, Waddell or Waddell, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would be a great subject for him. Well, have you ever read The Glory of Their Times? One of my favorite books. In fact, that oh, yeah. was the inspiration for the wrestling book I did. Ah. It was actually inspired by that. Um, when Dick Byer, the, the mass destroyer who was from my hometown, passed away, I reached out to a friend of mine who was a wrestling writer and said, look, no one's ever done A Glory of Their Times with these old timers, and they're all gone almost. Yeah. Someone should do this. And then he said, well, I'm working on this idea. Let's combine the two. And we spent two years contacting every old-timer we could, several of which it was the last interview they ever gave before they passed. Wow. That's great. And, yeah, that was my tribute to the glory of their times. That's the fourth greatest baseball book ever written. <laughs> I don't consider that a written book, though, because it was everybody's, you know, memories. Yes. But, yeah. Yeah, the Rube Waddle stories in there are just chasing <laughs> fire trucks and wrestling alligators. And my all-time favorite is that opposing fans could distract him with shiny objects and puppies. And I get this mental image of people holding puppies up and him standing on the mound staring at them. Because apparently he did. Yeah, yep. It's so funny, we're not just baseball historians. The reason we're baseball historians, despite the first 15 minutes of us bitching about baseball, was because there's a deep-rooted love in us for this game. Yeah, it's... It, and where, just, did, where did your initial love of the game come from, Boston? But, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just, growing up, I was. I just loved the Red Sox. I was. Uh, I went to my first game at nine years old. My dad took me to Fenway Park. Back then, you could get box. You know, walk up to the window and get box seats. Great box seats. I think they were four dollars a piece. Um, and you know, I, the nineteen sixty six Red Sox were in uh, a ninth place team. They were just terrible. And then in 1967, when I was 10, they won the pen, <laughs> the impossible dream. And that just made me, oh, wow, this is so great. 
but I, I discovered, you know, baseball goes way back in my family. My my grandfather dated my grandmother at the 1914 World Series, which was the Braves versus the Athletics. And it was, although, though it was the Braves, it was played at Fenway Park because I think Braves Field was undergoing renovations. Uh, so this... Um, so that's great. Um, I found a, a scorecard from 1904 that my grandfather kept of a double header at um, at Huntington Avenue grounds in Boston, and he saw Cy Young pitch in one game and Jack Chesbro pitch in the other game for the uh, New York Highlanders. And uh, you know, it's I I went into the uh, newspaper archives to look about look up that game and I discovered that George Wright was in the audience at the game and it's sort of like that really hit me like George Wright the first acknowledged professional baseball player so through my grandfather baseball goes goes from that first professional player right up to the current time through me. And it's it's just like, wow, the, the whole panoply of the game is in a very brief period when you think about it. And, it, and it's just so, it's just so wonderful to just see any point in time and see how baseball changed and reflected the society. So I, I just love that about it. Um, you know, there was, uh, blacks were involved in baseball very early. I mean, that's sort of a forgotten story, but, you know, the first major league black player was not, not Jackie Robinson. The, the first known black player, uh, in the major leagues was Moses Fleetwood Walker in this American association I write about. And, uh, what he had to go through was incredible. He had his own pitcher crossing him up on uh, on the signs. Uh, he would give a sign for a curveball, and the guy would throw him a fastball, almost kill him. And uh, it was just brutal what he had to deal with. So I think you know it's it's great looking at the history of this. What really what really happened that's often been uh, airbrushed out of history. In Buffalo, in the Federal League, had black players. Yeah, the inter uh, yeah, and the international league uh, had had some really great black players, and there were black professional teams in 1883, um, which is kind of mind blowing. Uh, they they had a great team in uh, St. Louis. I think they were called the Black Stockings. I forget. I should look that up, but. You know, uh, and they played against white teams and did quite well. And people don't realize, you know, John McGraw wanted to integrate the game. Yep. Kept a yep. list of players he wanted. Yep, yep. Didn't he try to pass him off as an Indian? He did. <laughs> I mean, and, and another, you know, baseball changed the world. The history of the world is baseball-related because... If Fidel Castro could have hit a curveball, <laughs> he'd have signed a major league contract. He had tryouts with professional teams. Yeah, that would have been much preferable to his career as a mass murderer and 
kleptocrat. That would have been... That's that's the lesson kids (laughs) learned to hit a curveball. Because because he couldn't hit a good curveball, he didn't get signed. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and baseball was... People don't understand how, or maybe have forgotten how central that was to American culture around the turn of the 20th century. I mean, that, that was the way immigrants sort of bonded with America and uh, proved that they were Americans. They got obsessed with baseball. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing. I'm always sad when my co-host Lauren can't join us. Um, You know, she's in Wales, of course, and uh, she couldn't join us today because she started a new job at a museum and she's stuck working on a project. But I'm glad she's not here now because she always refers to baseball as nothing more than fancy rounders. Typical <laughs> person from the UK. Rounders, the great rounders debate. Yeah, yeah. The you know, and, and baseball had to fight with cricket for dominance in America. It's. Uh, I'm working on a new book about Lincoln, and I. Uh, this is during the 1860 Republican Convention in Chicago. There was a giant cricket match where this great cricket team from St. Louis came to Chicago. And the bands were there and a big crowd. And it's it's very interesting looking at how cricket almost <laughs> almost uh, won the day against baseball. Yeah, but here but I am complaining base- about a four-hour Yankee game. I yeah, yeah, a four-day base- cricket game. <laughs> Baseball won for that this exact reason because it was fast paced. People could, you know, take it in for an hour and a half and then go home. And uh, people loved it, loved it for that. And I wish the game could somehow shed this idea they have to extract every penny out of it they can get at the cost of uh, destroying the game because. If it was a shorter game, nine innings, I still think it should be nine innings. But they could make it shorter with fewer commercial breaks, uh, none of this nonsense of batters stepping out of the box, uh, maybe limit um, substitutions. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be all for that. You know, in the 1880s, the lineup, starting lineup, was the lineup for the game. You you couldn't replace somebody unless they became injured and persuaded the umpire they were injured. Um, so that was, uh, you know... And notice you said the umpire, not the umpires. <laughs> umpire, right. It was, uh, they were so, like, the owners were so chintzy, they only uh, paid for one umpire per game. And they tried to use one baseball per game, which is uh, another thing. By the end of the game, if it was hit into the, the stands, they'd have, the fans would have to throw it back on the field. And uh, by the end of the game, it was pretty mushy, and that affected statistics, too. So Covered in tobacco juice. And yeah, yeah. Beat to shit. And... Yep. Even uh, coming undone, you know, the, the uh, laces coming undone. and But, you know, that was, that was the game. Yeah, Roy Hodge hit the cover off the ball here in <laughs> Buffalo. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the sure other that... thing about baseball is its simplicity, yet its complexity. 
that are so yes. amazing. And it sounds crazy to say, but it is so eloquently put in Bull Durham, you hit the ball, you throw the ball, <laughs> you know, that's baseball. And yet, do you ever watch the videos of, like, showing foreigners baseball for the first time and watching how confused they are and they don't understand anything? <laughs> I mean, the baseball rule book is the size of a Bible. <laughs> yeah. It's huge. Yeah. But at yeah. its basics, it's a simple game. Yeah. With a lot of intricate rules. Maybe well, too many. The rule book is thick because... Uh... So many players in the 19th century tried to cheat, sort of, uh, you know, do underhanded things. And to maintain competition, they had to put in a new rule. You know, the, the infield fly rule. Uh, they would deliberately drop the ball and then d get double plays off it. And so they had to put that in. And it's just a million things like that. Yeah, you specifying know. you have to touch the bases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> instead of running from first to third in a loop behind the pitcher's mound, which was done, folks, there was one umpire on the field. Yeah, yeah, the umpire would be looking at the, you know, if you hit a ball to right field and the runner was on second base, the umpire would be looking at the play in right field, and the runner would uh, skip third base, come straight home, you know, do an arc, but, you know, miss the third, third base by 10 feet and come home. You know, there was a famous uh, player, very famous for that, uh, King Kelly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he would do that, and the crowd would be screaming, and the umpire would miss the whole thing. And one time the umpire called him out when he was he slid across home plate. He was clearly safe. He said, well, why'd you call me out? And he said, you got here too damn fast. So, <laughs> so, so that was the game. In baseball is Americana. I mean, it still is. Yeah, I mean, I like it in its tr uh, in its minor league. Uh, <laughs> my Buffalo Bisons. I love yeah, yeah. To see my Buffalo Bisons. Yeah, I, I like it at, at the minor league level a lot. I, it's it's not so uptight. It's not so expensive. It's not. Uh, it, it doesn't bombard you as much. It's, it's just uh, just a more pleasant. I just I really wish you know we've talked about this, but I just really wish they would speed the game up and make it simpler and not squeeze out every cent they can get. Like they they put you know the premier games, the World Series and playoffs on where when. Late it so late that little kids can't watch it, and that's to me that's cutting your own throat. Little kids, Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm in bed half. <laughs> no kidding, and people who work for a living, you're right. But but little kids, the next generation, they just they don't care. They don't think of cultivating it. They just want to squeeze every dollar out of it they can now. And uh, coworkers always know when the Yankees are on a West Coast loop <laughs> with bags under my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> You're it's nodding off at the desk. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm a UCLA Bruins basketball fan, so they always know when UCLA played, too. But <laughs> but baseball is, like I said, we, we've been complaining about it and bashing it and making fun of it, but 
you know, it's still some of my fondest memories of my entire life are baseball. Oh, yeah, me too. And it'll always be there, that, that, that love, that passion, that, you know, remembering, you know, Ozzie Smith's home run in the World Series. You know, Ozzie wasn't yeah. a home run hitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I saw, you know, I saw all four games of the 1975 World Series at, at Fenway Park. So, I mean, that was the greatest World Series, I think. It was just spectacular. So I saw, you know, that incredible Game 6 of 1975 when Fisk waved the ball fair and all that. And I was actually, I had such terrible seats. I was sitting in the last row on third base side at Fenway Park, and I couldn't see the the corner of the Green Monster. Where So I, could, I had to watch Fisk to see what happened at the plate. And he was waving and waving, and then he ran to first base, and I knew he had hit a home run and won the game. And that was a, you know, just unforgettable moment. I remember being a little kid, going to Pittsburgh with my father to see the the Astros play the Pirates, and not understanding he didn't like either team. Why are we <laughs> going to see the Astros play the Pirates? And he said, because Nolan Ryan's pitching. To see Nolan Ryan... You know, you didn't see him in this area very yeah. often. Pittsburgh's three yeah. hours away. You know, and that was the logic. And that's baseball. And I'll never oh. forget that. Going to see Nolan Ryan pitch as a little kid. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, that's just... Memories like that. The iconic figures from our childhood. Yeah. Are kids going to have that in 20 years from now? I don't know. Yeah, I don't see it. I mean, the players are better than they've ever been. Bigger, obviously. faster, stronger. Yep. Better conditioned, better athletes. Yep. Yeah. But really, who are the ones that 20 years from now kids are going to look back and say, you know, when I was your age, I went to see Melky Cabrera play. <laughs> well. I mean, seriously, but- who? Maybe, but it's it's like uh, entertainment is so segmented that this, I don't think this is the kind of touchstone players there were back uh, back fifty years ago. I mean, maybe some of the pitchers, but e- even that now, you know, I can picture them going, "Yeah, big deal, Dad. He got thirty million a year, and he pitched four innings a game." Yeah, you know, I yeah. think the last one like that, the last players like that that people are going to tell their kids they want to see to go to your your Red Sox will be like a Pedro. Yeah. Or for my Yankees, you know, Jeter. Yeah. You know, I saw Pedro pitch. You know, it'll be that, but I, I, I don't see it now. You know, Aaron Judge might be the biggest star in baseball, but I can't picture people in 20 years saying, I once saw Aaron Judge play ball. Oh, I don't know. Maybe him. Maybe Trout. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. You know, we can't be too cynical. Yeah. But I I just think the players lost that every man appeal. Yeah. You know, now they're superheroes. They're Marvel characters now. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. My wife, my wife has just entered the house, so if you hear yelling for me, that's her. 
but well, we'll wrap it up in a minute because uh, yeah, you yeah. know, the wife's home. I understand mine's gonna be home soon. Going, where's my supper? It's, it's kind of funny how roles have reversed in twenty twenty two. She's Fred Flintstone, and I'm Wilma now. Yeah, but I will. We'll end this with uh, the rapid fire round. Good. We'll ask a few questions real quick. Don't have to do with anything. No wrong answers unless you get the answer wrong, then I'll tell you. Uh-oh. One, you said you're working on a new book about Lincoln. <laughs> What's it about? I mean, specifically, if you can. Yeah, it's uh, this hasn't been announced, so you're the first to hear it, I think. But it's it's called The Lincoln Miracle. And it's about a week in May 1860 when he went from being a, you know, the dark horse of dark horses to winning the Republican nomination for president. So I do it almost on an hour by hour basis. Uh, what changed? What secret deals his supporters made? Uh, all the wrangling going on in the background. Why the the candidate that that was the star of the Republican Party, who was William Henry Seward, why he went down in flames. And it's very, it's very fun, I think. It's, it's, it's very much like baseball. It's about a competition and with very colorful characters taking part in it. So um, I will that's got, coming out next February. Question two. Yes. Abe Lincoln, as we all know, was not only one of the greatest presidents ever, but he was also an athlete and a wrestler, which means you can buy the wrestlers, wrestlers, the masters of the craft, professional wrestling, and find booksellers everywhere. But who wins in the presidential wrestling match, Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt? Oh, I would think Lincoln would. You know, he's he had those long arms. He had a lot of strength. He... Uh... You know, he, he would, could hold out an axe at a straight with a straight arm for a long period of time. So I think he was—he'd be quite good. His big game was—he uh, was, uh, he was uh, the day he learned he was nominated for president. He was playing ball in Springfield, uh, Illinois, and I was disappointed to discover it wasn't baseball; it was handball, and that was his big game. He played <laughs> at this. Uh, court but uh downtown between these different office buildings down there and he said that it made his shoulders feel well because he apparently had a lot of sh- uh, pain in the shoulders from stress and stooping and all that stuff so he had those big long arms he could really whip the ball so that was his sport yeah, well you remember i said no wrong answers it would have been <laughs> a wrong answer because you know teddy used to bring like professional boxers and wrestlers into the White House to fight him until well, they was, made him stop doing that. He was quite an athlete and a, and a boxer, too. Yeah, you're right. And you're he was right. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Lincoln took on the biggest bullies in his town in Salem, uh, New Salem, Illinois, and uh, he, he whipped them, and that's how he became a respected member of that community and went on from there to run for the state legislature and uh so maybe wrestling is the at the core of lincoln's success in life it was in fact i think his original campaign slogan was vote for me or i'll whoop your ass (laughs) pretty sure (laughs) question number three 
if you could change one rule in baseball right now to make it better, what would it be? Just one. Uh, stepping out of the batter's box. I'd ban that. That's a good answer. <laughs> Most people would say the shift, but I'm like, no. Some people would say, you know, um, amount of pitchers, limit your bullpen. But no, you're right. More time is taken up by people adjusting their batting gloves than anything right. else. You know, and they, they you mentioned the shift. John McGraw in 1902 figured out how to defeat the shift. He just bumped the ball. I scream that at my television every day. But, you know, the problem, analytics say it's better to swing for the home run. <laughs> right, and a certain parabola, right? Yeah, I'm like, wait a second, you're guaranteed a hit if you just right. bunt. That's it. You would think that would uh, the the statistics would bear that out, but apparently it doesn't in this one case. So, <laughs> and the very last question, yes, because I asked you last time you were on if Pluto was a planet. <laughs> so this time you get. Do you believe in Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in Bigfoot, but I. Enjoy it tremendously. I love the the videos <laughs> purporting to be Bigfoot and <laughs> and uh, the Loch Ness monster too. I love love that too. Bigfoot would be a hell of a ball player, sort of like when Herman <laughs> Munster played for the Dodgers. Remember? <laughs> I do remember that. That was a. a Great highlight of Western civilization. Well, it was the second best television draft pick by the Dodgers because Mr. Ed with the Dodgers was better. <laughs> Mr. Ed slid into home, okay? <laughs> My gosh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Guaranteed a World Series if they're on your team. Yeah. Well, well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. And promise me you will be back on with the new Lincoln book. I, I would love to be. Thank you, Brian. And thanks for the kind words. I, I greatly appreciate that. Seriously, folks, you've got to pick up those books. They are the best books ever written about baseball and history. You will love them. The Lincoln book. Go to your, your website, edacorn.com. You can get everything there, get information. Go to Amazon, edacorn, and just pick up everything. Great. And Thank you, Bryce. <laughs> Thanks Go so Highlander. much. I'll talk Great. to you soon, brother. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Bye-bye. Ah, Lauren, what did you think about that? That was really good. I really enjoyed that. Even though I called it Fancy Rounders, it was still very interesting. I thought you'd like that when I pointed out you call it Fancy Rounders. <laughs> I know. And uh, is it, I, I love it. Not just because he laughs at everything I say. I mean, that's a big plus, but... Uh, it is because he laughs at everything you say. It's it's so... Ed's, Ed's the perfect example of why... I always say, people, why does everybody hate each other so much in this world now? Because Ed and I are opposites. I'm a lifelong you know, Democrat, he's a lifelong Republican. I'm a Yankees fan, he's a Red Sox fan, and yet look how we get along. The world needs more of that. Yeah. Although we both agreed cricket sucks. Cricket does suck. Cricket does suck, but 
baseball does not. And neither does Dracula. Well, actually, technically, Dracula does suck, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And our next episode will be talking sucking with Dracula. <laughs> the actual Dracula. We have managed to track down the Count himself. And we shall be talk- We shall be listening about his long life of vampirism. Did I just say we're going to be sucking Dracula? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be talking Dracula with the great Neil Story and, of course, film historian, horror historian, hammer horror historian Bruce Hollenbeck will be with us on the next episode and we'll talk all things Dracula. But I think we better call it a show, Lauren, before I just completely lose it. So any parting words before we say goodnight to everybody? Um, It's nice to be back. It is nice. It's nice to be talking to you again, Lauren. Thank you. It's nice to be talking to you as well. And I'll be talking to you sooner than you think, because we're going to be recording another episode soon, and then we'll be back. So, from Brian in Buffalo. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. No marshmallows.